All right, now on to today's speaker. Dr. David Cox is a visiting professor of history from Southern Virginia University. He was ordained in the Episcopal Church in 1972 to serve parishes in Connecticut, and David then returned to Virginia in 1987 to become rector of the R.E. Lee Memorial Episcopal Church in Lexington. In 2000, he left that position to complete doctoral studies, for which he received fellowships at Harvard Divinity School and Virginia Theological Seminary. He then served congregations in Northern Virginia, Richmond, and Hot Springs. He ran for Virginia's House of Delegates in 2005, for State Senate in 2007, and in 2008, he was elected to the Lexington City Council, on which he served for a uh, four-year term. At SVU, since 2006, he's taught liberal arts and history with a focus on American and religious studies. We're so impressed that David has published three books, one on marriage, another on ministry, and lastly, uh, the just uh, published this March, I think it was, right, David? The Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, copies of which will be available for purchase and for signing afterwards. I don't think you'll find any in the used book sale, not yet. <laughs> He's now, of course, working on a history of the Lee Chapel in Lexington. We're so thrilled to have him here. Clearly, you're speaking on a topic of great interest to all of us at the Virginia Historical Society. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cox. Thank you, Jamie, for your kind welcome. And Graham, wherever you are, for all the arrangements that you've made. As a member of the clergy, I know that from long experience of doing weddings that uh, many people come for the reception, but they put up with the service. <laughs> You've come, I'm sure, for the book sale. <laughs> and now to put up with some, some words about uh, Robert E. Lee. It is fitting that we, that this largest by far uh, occasion come, uh, occur here at the Virginia Historical Society because in a very real sense, this is where it all began. In 2002, I was thinking of finding more about Lee and his religious life and his beliefs, and so I rented, I was working at, uh, up at Emanuel Church, Brook Hill, and got an apartment right across the street thinking, well, I can begin to explore the papers here. And in 2003, that's 14 years ago, right about this time, I just started reading one letter after another. And sure enough, it, be, the, it did begin to emerge. These were family letters. And the Virginia Historical Society has the largest collection of anywhere in the world of these very kinds of letters that I was interested in. But they do no good if they remain in the archives. And any of you who have been to the library know how wonderful the library staff is in uh, not only in making these resources available, but often in interpreting them. Um, I, am, I want to record my deep gratitude to the Historical Society, and particularly to those who work in the library staff, to John McClure, and particularly uh, to uh, Lee Shepard, who's going to be retiring at the end of the month. Uh, often I would say, Lee, what does this mean? And he'd get it instantly. 
and especially to Francis Pollard, who is here and was just so wonderful to me as to so many other scholars over the years, and who set a tone of real and genuine service for us who are looking at these materials in making them available in a very generous uh, and hospitable environment. And so I'm very grateful indeed. PGT Beauregard couldn't understand Robert E. Lee. After Appomattox, Beauregard seriously considered fleeing the Union in order to enter the arms, or rather the armies, of Brazil or Romania or Egypt. Others had already left. Matthew Fontaine Murray was, at that point, serving the Emperor of Mexico. But rumors circulated that the hero of the lost cause, Robert E. Lee, counseled ex-Confederates to stay, to rebuild, even to reconcile with the hated Yankees. Worse yet, Lee himself had taken a job as a college president in order to practice what he allegedly preached. Beauregard failed to understand this paradox, this contradiction in what everyone would rightly have expected Lee to do. After some months, he expressed his consternation to Lee. Lee replied, true patriotism requires of men sometimes to act exactly contrary at one period to that which it does at another in order to fulfill what he called the desire to do right. Circumstances change, so he wrote, one must conduct, uh, one's conduct must conform to the new order of things. George Washington was an example he gave of that who fought with the British against the French at one point, and then at another point with the French against the British. From that viewpoint, from Lee, no paradox at all. Beauregard stayed. I grew up, as I gather many of you did as well, when white America saw Lee as a national hero. 30 years ago, I came to Lexington, where he saved the school he served. I wondered why that congregation most famous parishioner, from whom it took his very name, made that paradoxical shift from war to peace. I wondered, too, how the Lee of the statues reflected the Lee, uh, the human being. I began reading his letters, especially to his family, because they gradually, it was there in the letters to this family that he was really being honest and open. And they gradually revealed his religion. And it's his faith, I found, which unravel the seeming paradoxes of his life. And perhaps it may help us, us to understand the paradoxes about history and the relationship, too, between statues and the person of Lee, if you want to, if we choose to go there. Those paradoxes of Lee began even before his birth. 
Lee's forebears brought their Church of England faith to Virginia. For generations, the family said daily prayers using the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. But the Lee's house in Stratford Hall and then, and then Alexandria was a household divided by a common faith. Both mother and father were Episcopalian. His father went to Princeton, where he learned alongside James Madison the principles of the Scottish Enlightenment. Like many founders, Lighthorse Harry espoused a deism that prized the laws of nature and of nature's God, as Jefferson wrote in the Declaration. He writes, what I understand to be pure religion is a heart void of offense to God and man and a belief or faith in one God who delights in right and reproves wrong. The forms and ceremonies of religion differ, but in essence, they all worship the same almighty creator and rest on his providence, note that word for a few minutes, and protection, they rest on his providence and protection here and hereafter. In the revolutionary era, this wing of Virginia's Episcopal Church emphasized duty and right conduct and was very prominent. It scorned what Harry called the two great enemies of religion, superstition and enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, wait. Anne Hill Carter Lee grew up in the same Virginia tradition, but sat in a different wing of the church. She was an evangelical, influenced by the Second Great Awakening of the early 1800s. So she writes her son, Carter, who goes to Harvard, a place of rampant Unitarianism. I sent my son there, too. and He didn't turn out so bad. <laughs> I am at, he didn't get a letter like this, either. I, I don't think. <laughs> I am, at times, very unhappy, lest you should become a Sassinian. Oh, pray fervently for faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only rock of your salvation and the only security for your resurrection from the grave. She is an enthusiast. So, Sicinian is another name for Unitarianism. So, uh, enthusiasm is a euphemism for evangelical. Anne implies that her children's father is a Sicinian, a Unitarian. And Henry implies that their mother is an enthusiast. Poor Robert. So, like any sensible te a teenager would, he ignores religion altogether. Well, he ignores the disputes. He goes to church. He learns his catechism from William Meade, who is the, becomes the powerful and dominant bishop of Virginia and Lee's spiritual father. But primarily, he concentrates on caring for his mother, gleaning an education, getting into West Point and thriving there. He's doing his duty to God, family, and West Point. 
and then he falls in love. His childhood playmate, Mary Anna Randolph Custis of Arlington, catches his heart, and that's reciprocated. Sometime in September 1830, they agree to marry. Just one problem. On July 4, 1830, Mary undergoes an evangelical conversion of her own. She turns enthusiast, like her mother and Roberts. Her diary shows her struggling between godly faith and worldly lures, and Robert is worldliness personified. How can she love God and also love this handsome young lieutenant? She starts a diary that very day and strangely, never in the year before their marriage does she ever mention even his name. But the letters show how she tries to resolve the paradox between loving God and loving Robert. Get Lee converted, too. Well, Lee is down in Georgia building um, a fort on a mosquito-infested island, just yearning to be married. He's going to church. He reads the sermons she sends him. Notice that. She tries to, he tries to do all the right things, but remains, as he half-jokingly calls himself, sinful Robert. He really wants to get married but he's not willing to sell his soul to do it. Already, we can see this sense of fortitude and of personal integrity. Well, he gets his wish. They marry, they have seven children and a devoted relationship. They involve themselves in the Episcopal Church early on. She teaches a Sunday school for enslaved children. In time, he joins the vestry, which is the governing board. They get to know their clergy very well. And over the years, Lee grows into a set of convictions which mirror American Protestantism generally. Basically, he combines these two religious traditions that he grew up with, one from his father, one from his mother. And at the heart of both of these is the concept of providence. The idea of providence grows out of the biblical idea that the Lord will provide. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God oversees this world. But how this God does his overseeing and the degree to which he oversees, on that they differ. Some following the more enlightened deistic tradition of Henry Lee and also, by the way, of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, and others, held that by general providence, God oversaw the world and guided nations. Divine providence would, as is mentioned in the Declaration, would win independence, but it wouldn't necessarily win battles. By contrast, people like Anne Carter Lee believed in a specific Providence that not only sets the destiny of nations, but also influenced personal lives in direct and personal ways. 
Well, Lee increasingly combines these two understandings of providence. He's not alone. Lincoln, Stonewall Jackson, and American Protestants across denominations do much the same thing so that it really does become the prevailing understanding in the country. For Lee, he decides that if something happens, unless it's a consequence of sin, then it is, it occurs because God wills it. And so he writes to Mary in 1857, how gracious is God who sees her pain from rheumatoid arthritis and at just the right moment sends relatives to escort her to Bath County where she can get relief at the Warm Springs. But there's a corollary deeply rooted in Anglican tradition. We mortals must resign ourselves to God's will. Resignation does not mean throwing in the towel. Rather, it implies a giving over, or we might say getting with the program, adapting to fit God's will. In that same letter to Mary that I quoted a moment ago, Lee adds, should it not please God to grant our prayers or favor our efforts, we must not repine, but be resigned. Knowing that he will never afflict us but for our good, which, though it may be hid to us, is clear to him. Relax no efforts, therefore, Mary, that affords a reasonable prospect of relief. Resign to God's will, God knows best, but do your part to make the best of it. <coughs> As Mary's health falters, so does the nation. Lee applies his notion of providence, of general providence, to slavery. He opposes the institution as evil, but strangely to us, worse for whites than for blacks. And he believes God will end it. By entrusting it to God, however, he opposes abolitionists whom he sees as forcing the hand of God. They're, they're pursuing their program, not God's. Another paradox. Fast forward four years. Lincoln is elected, state starts seceding. Beauregard starts shooting at Sumter. Lee meets one Thursday in April with Francis Blair at what we still call Blair House, across from the White House. Blair offers, on Lincoln's behalf, command of US forces to Lee. Lee deprecates secession as disastrous. He says if he could save the Union by freeing the enslaved, whether he means those in his family's control or all in the South is unclear, but he would do it. He declines the offer, first to Blair, then to General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. He goes home, he writes his resignation from the Army, and sets it aside for a night or two. Not until Saturday morning, when he hears of a riot in Baltimore, does he send it off to Scott to make it official. And then he tells his family, 
Knowing his views on slavery and secession, the family, which is largely unionist, is stunned. This seems not to have been for Lee a huge crisis of faith, but a carefully reasoned analysis of loyalties. He wrote to a cousin in a letter typical of the many he wrote that day, I have been unable to make up my mind to raise my hand against my native state, my relatives, my children, and my home. This is the language not of evangelical theology, but rather of ethics and duty. In other words, his father's tradition. On Monday, he was offered command of Virginia's military forces but he did not enlist in a crusade. Fast forward four more years. The end looms. Some aides propose waging guerrilla war. Lee has none of it. He tells them, the Confederacy has failed. As Christian men, we must consider not only the effect which our actions will have upon the country at large. He says if his soldiers could go home quietly and quickly, they could plant crops and begin to repair the rages of war. That is what I must now try to bring about. Notice how his pragmatism mixes with faith. So Lee then goes and he surrenders to Grant, and in a sense he also surrenders to God. He writes to a priest in Petersburg, God has thought fit to afflict us most deeply, and his chastening hand is not yet stayed. He writes this in May. We have only to submit to his gracious will and pray for his healing mercy. And that for him meant seeking a genuine peace, again quoting, that the afflictions and interests of the country may be united and not a forced and hollow truce formed to be broken at the first convenient opportunity. To this, all good men should labor. Lee now seems to be thinking much more theologically than ethically, if I can draw that distinction. For, he, for years he, like many in the South, believed that if the South was to win, it could do so only if God wills it. The South lost. Lee did the math. He reportedly told a Union general he knew from Mexican war days, the only question on which we did not agree has been settled, and the Lord has decided against me. So what do you do when you realize the Lord has decided against you? In Lee's words, the first thing you do is resign. But remember, for Lee, that doesn't mean throwing into the towel. It means getting with the program. You stay. You seek peace. You try to reconcile. You restore prosperity. That becomes Lee's agenda his overall goal. So what's he to do? How is he going to do that, to put that into action? He could make a fortune uh, through endorsements or writing his memoirs. He could lead prestigious schools. 
but the chance to lead a down-and-out college in remote, rural Lexington grabs his imagination. Lee seeks out a priest he knows for some godly counsel. When the friend proposes more viable institutions, Lee responds that this door and not another was open to him by providence, and he wanted reassurance that he could do the job such that his remaining years, quoting the priest, would be a comfort and a blessing to his suffering country. At that, the cleric recalled, Lee's whole countenance glowed with animation. Lee came to Washington College to do his part in binding up the wounds of war, which, not incidentally, he had done so much to inflict. By training the young to serve their country in ways both practical and principled. To the old classical studies, he added courses in English and modern history, but also in mining, engineering, agriculture, journalism, business, law. He abolished mandatory chapel attendance, then built a new chapel, by the way, with all free labor, first one in, at the college. He attended every day so that everyone else did too, not because they had to, but because they chose to. Success followed. In 1868, the college enrolled 410 students making it the largest academic institution in the entire South, except for that school in Charlottesville, <laughs> and the, the, uh, it was about uh, only 100 fewer than Harvard or Yale undergraduate colleges, the highest number in the 19th century, not exceeded till 1907, it was a success. He became a very successful, forward-looking educator. He also, by then, had become the paramount moral authority in the South. In word, he urged others to stay, to rebuild, to reconcile, to lay aside the animosities of the past in order to pursue the peace for the future. Indeed, he built up the college as a means of building up the region and the country, indeed. He avoided anything arousing controversy. He did not attend his church's national convention, nor did he run for Virginia's governorship because he thought it might arouse animosities. He diffused two lynch bobs in town, one against a black, one aimed at a white. Like most whites, he accepted a racial hierarchy that we now reject. But he also believed with William Meade that each person is God's creation, worthy of rights and of justice and of God's love. Many paradoxes, but two for me stand out. Lee is the only general in history to be offered command of two opposing armies. I'm sure you're aware of that. He is also one of the very few to lead the defeated side in a bitter civil war 
then to become that side's chief advocate for peace. It's through that second paradox that I believe Lee's greatness truly emerges. So I guess we could pause, or I could stop, because I'm sure, I know that in Charlottesville they're concerned about monuments. I'm not, I don't know about Richmond. <laughs> but I sort of gather there are a few. So let's, how do we deal with those? How do we deal with paradoxes like that? We can't do it in 30 second sound bites or 140 characters. In fact, our divided era can hardly cope with any shades of gray but especially of Confederate gray. And the Lee that I've described, the person he became, differs dramatically from the stereotype of Lee, which finds most visible expression right now in the statues. But is that the problem of Lee or the problem of statues? Here's the basic problem that I see. Statues exist in stone and bronze. People live in flesh and blood. For one thing, people change. Statues don't. Lee was at one point a man of war and another point a man of peace. Beauregard couldn't deal with that. Lee could. We should too because that's human nature. On the other hand, the interpretation of statues does change. These were put up for one set of motives, which we might discuss later, but one was to honor the past and its leaders. But now, if not also then, some see these as symbols of oppression. And possibly, that is what they were meant to be. And what if the message that is conveyed differs from what the person being honored upheld. Lee's statue depicts a paragon of the Confederate cause, but he had issues with that, kind of, that same cause. People will also read into statues what they want. Lee foresaw that danger, which is why he refused to go to Gettysburg to advise on where to put monuments to the battle. They would arouse passions and perpetuate ill will. He advised, quote, not to keep open the sores of war, but to obliterate the marks of civil strife and to commit to oblivion the feelings it engendered, unquote. By that standard of his, maybe we shouldn't have them in the first place. But we do. And now what? I can't answer that. Sorry. but I might offer a thought or two. I certainly have a hope. I'd like to see a greater humaneness in our discussions. In this era of terrible polarization, to see humanity for better and worse of those that are past, but also in our own day, of ourselves. I tried in my book to look at Lee as a person, as a soul, if you will, someone who shared our human nature, who was not perfect, 
and yet who also shaped who we have become. And in my thinking, two quotations come to mind. The first from the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of one of the most paradoxical eras of human history, at once exalting, important, and yet so bloody. The guy who got it, Martin, uh, the guy who got it going, Martin Luther, saw human nature as simul justus et peccator, at once righteous and sinful. Luther provides his own best illustration with penetrating insight and singular purpose. He changed basic perspectives on God and on church and on humanity. Yet he could be unfeelingly cruel regarding Jews, peasants, and nearly anyone who disagreed with him. <laughs> Simul justus et peccator. I'm not equating one chapter of Lee as sinful and the next as righteous, but rather evoke a truth that he well knew, sinful Robert, for he well knew the sinful condition, filled as it is with astonishing possibility and accomplishment, and yet inevitably flawed, neither wholly good nor totally evil, though clearly some people tip the scale one side or the other. Such is a stereotype that statues, excuse me, such is a truth that statues and stereotypes can't convey. The second quotation comes from Shakespeare. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. Statues, in a way, violate that, don't they? They seem to be flawless, larger than life, putting people on a pedestal, the exact opposite of what Shakespeare said. In our politicized day, if someone's on the other side of a debatable fence, we don't even wait to inter that person before interring the good. Look at our last election. And this carries over to figures of history. But people are more complex than that, both Eustace and Peccator, in their day and in ours. It would help greatly for us as a people to remember that whether dealing with our past or our present. Two quick examples. First time I went to Monticello was 1965 on my way to the university. I don't recall the word slave ever being mentioned. Now, every term, we take all of our students at Southern Virginia in my class, and, and it's a required class. So everybody at SVU goes over to visit Mr. Jefferson's home. We go through the mansion, then take the slave tour. The slave tour, hmm, not something they had in 1965. One marvelous student was so disillusioned that the author of the Declaration of Independence owned human beings, that it was as though she'd learned the truth about Santa Claus. <laughs> I hope I'm not letting anything out of the bag there. <laughs> but in the process, we talked about it, and in the process, she grew in wisdom and perspective. By contrast, as you may have read, last November, students and faculty uh, at the, some at the University of Virginia demanded the president cease quoting the school's founder because he owned slaves and held racist beliefs. 
Using his words, they said, and I quote, undermines the message of unity, equality, and civility that she was trying to convey, unquote. But banning Jefferson's words would lose the very expressions on which our ideals of unity, equality, and civility are based, like all men are created equal. He wrote that. History is a both and proposition. Let's also not get statues confused with people. Mayor Mitch Landro asked a question in a highly regarded speech that points to the problem. He asks, can you look into a young African-American girl's eyes and convince her that Robert E. Lee is there to encourage her? Do these monuments help her see a future with limitless potential? Regarding the Lee statue to the mayor's question, the answer would be no. That's the nature of statues. That's the nature of that statue in particular. But Lee the person? Would that be possible? Absolutely yes. Why? Because he did precisely that for people regardless of race. Though the cause he fought for aimed to perpetuate slavery and, and secession, his cause after the war aimed at encouraging the young in every way possible, in many ways to do the opposite of what he had fought for. So before defining, deciding the fate of monuments, we might ask, what is there to remember? We always read history from our own perspective. Is there anything about Lee which we should hold on to? And I believe the answer to that is absolutely yes. That, his, that is his commitment in his last years to bring people together, to promote the well-being of all, to extend justice to everyone regardless of faith, of race, or class. Did he do that perfectly? No. Nor can we. Simul justus et peccator. But he tried. And building peace, nurturing prosperity, fostering justice, reconciling our divided society, building it up for all people, respecting the dignity of every human being. Don't we need those qualities in our day as much as he did in his? And aren't those values for which all good people should labor? I leave you with those questions. Thank you. We have at least a few minutes for a few questions, I believe. Yes, yes sir, a story of a, a person of character dealing with conflicting principles. Uh, Lee uh, had views on race and uh, on Reconstruction. What was his view or his vision for a reconciled union, particularly as related to black folks? Thank you. He, um, his, his vision, I think, was 
really uh, formulated, articulated, and, and so forth it, at Appomattox. In some ways, it was a, a, a return to the status quo antebellum with the exception of slavery. Uh, but he did look toward the generous terms that Grant was offering and appreciated those very much and wanted to do the same thing for, uh, for society in general. Now, uh, in terms of race, yes, he shared, as I mentioned, this uh, racial hierarchy with whites at the top and people of color at various stages below. And even within the white race, there are letters that indicate that there's a pecking order with Anglo-Saxons at the top. But that did not preclude the responsibilities to each human being. Uh, the, the attempt to bring prosperity, the attempt to certainly to uh, provide for justice and for education. And so that um, rather than trying to hold people down, his emphasis seems to have been to raise everyone up. I hope that helps. Thank you for your lecture. I, I would ask you, how like or unlike would you compare the persona of Lee and the dichotomies of his persona to uh, Jackson? Uh, I have a book to suggest. <laughs> Sam Gwynn, who's a longtime friend, he wrote a wonderful book called Rebel Yell. Um, in many ways, there, there are some similarities uh, that certainly theologically, both of them were providentialists. Um, interestingly, Lee attended the church in New York that seven years later, Stonewall Jackson was baptized in. Uh, and an Episcopal church. But uh, Jackson, uh, when he came to Lexington, uh, went at Presbyterianism wholeheartedly. And so he has a very strong view of providence. Uh, and they share that at least to some extent. But Jackson's is more pronounced and, and more, more out there. And in a way, that's typical Jackson. Uh, so uh, Lee is much more restrained in a lot of ways, including in, in his religion. Uh, in a way, no less devout, but in, a, but in, in his own way. Um, with regard, you know, I'll, I'll just sort of, I'll basically leave it at that, that they're very similar, but they do differ, for one thing, in intensity. Uh, that for certain. Uh, thank you. That was, that was very interesting and enlightening. Um, what I'd like to ask is, what, what do you think uh, Lee's views were on the tenets of the lost cause, and how did those views align with reality? Thank you. I think that's an important question. As far as I can tell, including from some of the quotations that I used a few minutes ago, Lee believed that the lost cause was lost, period that his job, and in fact the job of the nation, was to uh, reconcile and become one. That didn't mean he liked it altogether. Didn't mean he approved of everything. Uh, he says at one point that the questions between us have been decided by arms, by force of arms. Uh, but 
it was decided, and in that he saw God's will. And if it's God's will, then why, as he said to Mary, don't repine. Uh, you know, resign yourself. Don't repine. Look ahead. And this is something very important, I think, that we tend to miss about Lee. He really looked ahead. Uh, there's a, uh, he writes at one point of the two churches in Virginia that he really cherishes. One is St. Peter's in New Kent. The other is Grace Church, that was then known in Lexington. In the case of... Um, of New Kent, that's where George and Martha Washington were married. In the case of Grace Church, because of its ministry to the young, one looks to the past, the other looks to the future. And the one he cherished the more, he said, was Grace Church. It looked toward the future. I think that's a very important aspect of Lee that we would do well to remember. Thank you for the question. All right. It, it, is that why uh, you think Lee was such an educational innovator? Uh, I mean, it's very striking how he changed the curriculum. It really is. Uh, I'm not sure that's specifically why. He was just a darn good educator. He had shown himself to be such at uh, West Point, where he was an innovative superintendent who was really tried to make life better for the cadets, but also trying to raise them up. He had them uh, go an extra year, which they didn't particularly like. He also wanted to make sure that they could speak Spanish because he'd just been through the Mexican War where they couldn't understand the language. So he, uh, he made these innovations at West Point, again, trying to look pragmatically, but also to the future. What does he do at Washington College? It really is the same thing. And he's very innovative in a lot of ways that I think is an unknown story. The degree to which he was a, uh, an almost revolutionary educator who was certainly in the times of the most progressive educators of the country and in some ways ahead of them. But again, it has to do with these overall goals that he has of trying to be very principled, very concerned about their faith and all that, but he's also very concerned that they be able to serve in practical ways when they went home to build prosperity and in so, build, uh, so doing, rebuild the South so it can be an integral part of the nation. So, thank you indeed. <laughs> <laughs>